in the middle as Morgan crosses. Chuck and arrives. Great save. Joe Willis low down to his right hand side. And once again, the national stopper denies Miami. Welcome into the Club and Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I'm Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of clubcountryusa.com, which you may also recognize as the namesake of this podcast. Moon Taxi once again with the music and ESPN 94.9, bringing us one of very few highlights from Nashville's scoreless draw with Inter-Miami that takes Nashville to 0-0-3 and three on the season. Three matches, three draws for the boys in gold. And in now 360 minutes, the boys in gold have never surrendered a goal to their expansion rival, Inter-Miami. But Tim, the focus really less on the club getting its first clean sheet of the season and more on the question of when will Nashville SC move beyond outplaying its opponents and start actually banking three points against them. Yeah, I mean, this narrative after uh, this past weekend's game is not so dissimilar from what we've heard and, and also what we've said after each of the first two games. NSC can be the better team on the day all at once, but unless and until it scores more goals than the other team on the day, uh, they're not going to get the results that they feel like they deserve and certainly not the results that they want. The club frustrated in Gary Smith's words with the inability to claim the victory in a match where once again they had more chances than their opponent, although, Tim, not quite as many as they'd had in their first two contests. It was definitely a, a tighter contest than the first two. Yeah, after dominating the first two games, obviously there's some some factors that went into that in terms of being down and having to fight back with a ton of shots, but... Uh, this was a, a game that was tilted in Nashville SC's direction, but it was not the lopsided sort of contest that we saw in the first two. We will dig into it on today's show, going deep into the draw. One Nashville player, despite the scoreless result, is earning league-wide recognition for his performance, while the match did mark an early season low point for the attack. What do we make of it? And we're going to try to answer your inquiries in an extended mailbag segment. Uh, and then it'll be time to embrace consensus, the segment that's so named because Great minds think alike, and so do ours. Will there be any daylight between our interpretations of the meaning of Sunday's match? And then finally, we'll tell you why one of us is riding high this week while the other is giving off, Tim, some pre-2021 West Ham vibes. Yeah, I... I would prefer not to go back to that dark period in history, but we'll see. (laughs) Plenty of time for you to climb back into the Champions League places. We'll tell you more about that. And we'll unveil our bold predictions for Saturday's showdown with New England. Will it be another cagey contest like the one Nashville saw last week and the two against New England last year? Without further ado, let's start the show by getting to our early shout. And Tim, the defense is back. After Nashville gave up two nothing deficits in each of its first two matches, a clean sheet for the boys in gold, and a team of the week performance for goalie Joe Willis. Yeah, he made two saves in the first seven minutes. Each of the two Miami starting wingers got a shot on goal, and each of them drew a diving save from him and, and pretty impressive saves from Joe Willis. And he didn't see the ball again after that, um, certainly not from the foot of the opponent. So that was something where when you have such a strong opening portion of the match, at times, maybe it wasn't a good week for goalkeepers around the league, but that can be enough to get that league-wide recognition. You could make the argument that on one or maybe even both of those saves, a replacement-level keeper maybe doesn't get to them, especially that second save there yeah, in, the, in the seventh minute of the highlight we've played. And, and if either one of those goals goes in, we're looking at a really different soccer match. Like we were saying in the intro there, when you have the early goals, it makes the other team play very differently. 
what we saw in this one kind of turned out to be uh, the, the fact that both teams saw that it was scoreless for a while and, and only one of them wanted to try to change that. But since the other one didn't want to try to change that, it made it tough. Team of the Week honors for Willis. Meanwhile, the best 11 defender from last year for Nashville, Walker Zimmerman, narrowly avoids a red card after a perilous tackle. You could make the argument fairly easily that it was denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, but the referee showed the yellow, it went to VAR, and he was not able to overturn it. It stayed as a yellow card. I tended to agree with the call, but it was tight. What'd you think? Yeah, live, I thought it was a red card all the way. Upon replay, I could see either way. And certainly, I did not believe that there was going to be enough to to meet the clear and obvious standard to overturn it. I think there are a couple different arguments for no red card, one of which is that Dave Romney wasn't so far away. Maybe he uh, would maybe Walker wouldn't have been considered kind of the last man there. So that's something that when you look at it, you have to meet all of the factors to be a denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. And certainly that it wasn't going to be overturned when it was not called as such on the field. To define that for the, those listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the rule or aren't as familiar with soccer just yet, we'll get you there. Essentially the factors are last man in on goal, a clear and obvious play, not on the ball, but on the body. And that will typically earn you a red card in this case, though. I, I This is why I, I think I agree with you there, that the presence of Dave Romney, he was close enough to the play that I think he could have disrupted the attack. The argument that Taylor Twellman made on the ESPN call was that if the shooter takes it first time, Romney doesn't have time to get there. But I don't think you can base an overturn on an assumption. I think you have to go with what's the more likely result, and in that case, it just didn't seem likely enough that it was going to justify overturning it. Yeah, and fans will remember back to the opener last year where, where Joe Willis committed a handball well outside of his box, and Atlanta fans were clamoring for the red card for the denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. And the argument was that Anibal Godoy, who was off-screen, so a lot of people who only saw it on television didn't really realize this, he made Willis not the last man, and that was a big part of why it ended up not being a red card. It was just a yellow card, and um, I'm, we're now a second-year tradition of Joe Willis having one major <laughs> goof in the opener, but playing well after that, so hopefully that can Meanwhile, Nashville's defense intact, clean sheet for the first time this year, but the attack, well, it waned a bit. 10 total shots, five on target, Tim, after averaging 25 and 10 through the first two games. Yeah, it's a little bit misleading the way I wrote that stat for you to read because most of that offensive production did come in the Cincinnati game, but still, uh, even from the Montreal game, this was a major step back for the offense and against a Miami team that hadn't kept a clean sheet yet this year either. So when you look at it, you say, is there something to this Nashville attack where they can't get it done if if Gary Smith's team also wants to get it done defensively? Obviously, we're going to talk a heck of a lot more about that over the course of this show. But I think when you look at it and say, oh, man, they really didn't get the job done and this Miami team hadn't covered itself in glory just yet. Uh, they were without a starter. Um, Nicholas Fagal got hurt in warmups you would have liked to see a little bit more final product for sure. Final product important, number of shots important. Another stat that I think takes us a little deeper and gives us a chance to really define the number of chances that Nashville had or touches inside the box. It around 50 of them against Cincinnati, 30 plus against Montreal, and just 16 against Inter-Miami. Against, as you mentioned, a defense that was a bit depleted and certainly not one of the best in, in Major League Soccer. I think Fans, as well as Gary Smith, are totally within their rights to be disappointed with the result, and that's what Gary expressed after the match. In the end, the big moments, the creative individuals, 
and uh, the opportunities uh, I felt that we uh, manufactured were unfortunately not clinical enough and I know they'll be disappointed with the opening 10 minutes but beyond that they had two shots none on target in the next what 80 78 minutes so I'm really pleased with a clean sheet but of course very frustrated and disappointed we weren't able to turn it into uh, a victory I think any coach and especially Gary Smith it will be very happy to tell you that he's more concerned with process than results in the course of an individual match but when you see it process 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 three times in a row and three times in a row not result, not result, not result. Certainly you have to really hope that those th two things come together or the process has to change. We saw a different type of process than we saw in the first two games, but it still didn't turn into a better type of result. And there's going to be continued tweaking to try and find that. And if you're thinking to yourself, all right, it was a scoreless match. How can they talk for 45 minutes on a podcast about a scoreless match? That's the subject we want to talk about is not just this game as an isolated contest, but how it fits into the larger tapestry, the narrative of Nashville SC season, both so far and moving forward. And so in a couple of minutes in our Embrace Consensus segment, that's what we want to explore. The, the balance between excitement and results and then what happens when Nashville gets neither and what we should take from that contest. But before we get there, a couple other notes for you and then some gold nuggets. Uh, debut appearances, Tim, from Rodrigo Pinheiro. The highly touted, at least externally, winger came in in the 93rd minute, I believe, and just played mm -hmm. a couple of quick minutes in the contest. And from Dom Baji, who featured for 14 minutes, had just six touches and one shot that was off target and, and quite frankly, should have been on target. Yeah, and neither of those guys necessarily got enough of a run out to really know whether that means they're going to challenge for more playing time over the course of this year, other than the fact that in getting their first playing time of the year, there's clearly a trajectory that they're on. Uh, we'll have to remain observant about what happens when there's a much more healthy forward group. I think um, Baji getting back onto the field is really positive. I know Gary Smith is very high on him, probably a little bit higher than the Nashville SC fan base has been over the course of his um, just over a year here in Nashville. But um, Pinheiro is a guy who, as we've mentioned, is going to take a little bit of time. They're excited about his future. But to get that first taste, to get his feet wet, um, kind of literally with <laughs> with some of the, the water on the field there, it's something that is going to be just another step in that development. And it is not kind of the end game that implies that he's ready to be a star. Pinheiro entered during stoppage time afterward uh, props to the NSC media relations staff for making him available after his debut. And he said through a translator, obviously it wasn't enough time, but I'll definitely have more opportunities to demonstrate and show what I'm capable of. And, and Gary Smith, Tim was, was pretty honest about the fact that Pinheiro is still finding his way, but that he looked quote, very, very bright this week in training. And, you know, Gary Smith being the man manager that he is wanted to, I think, reward that with at least a look at the field to quote, give him a lift. I mean, do you think we will see him contribute more heavily in coming matches? Or do you think this was a move just to give him a psychological boost and show him what opportunity could be there if he continues at it? Yeah, I've always been pretty clear that I think Gary Smith is, is a more honest and open head coach than you're going to get from a lot of people. But to say a lot of that was about the psychological lift was, was a pretty interesting uh, level of, of openness from Gary Smith. And I think it does imply that Pinero is still a little ways away, but that he's close enough that you don't want to damage his psyche by keeping him off the field when he has a good week in training. I was pretty surprised Pinheiro said uh, in another portion of his press conference that the, the training here is so much harder than it was in Uruguay, which when you look at all the amazing players that have come out of Uruguay in recent years, including but not limited to several who have found success in MLS, 
oh, you'd be a little surprised to hear that. And I, and I was surprised to hear that, but it's something where as he adjusts to it, he will probably be much more capable to take big strides where he's taking somewhat smaller ones right now. And as much as NSC fans will want to look at his stats this season as a measure of his quality, is it fair to say that maybe the most important number concerning him this year is his age? <laughs> that, yeah, that yeah I think so. Mean, when you look at it, when you look at a young guy and know that that there's a long career ahead of him, that's that's what you get the most excited about. Especially when he does have the flashes of brilliance that I think we're going to have a, a slight opportunity to see this year. And the word projectability can be an exciting but exhausting term for supporters, <laughs> especially after a scoreless result, thinking, can he come in and help us? Does he have the raw ability? And I think it's safe to say that the club believes that raw ability can lead to results eventually, but I think the word eventually is going to be key there. As most of our listeners probably know, I cover college football recruiting for a living. So he's he's the four-star that you say in three years he's going to be an All-American, not the four-star who you say, hey, he could be a freshman All-SEC player, but is probably going to cap out at that. It is the projectability over the current right now for him. He is all about the project, but there is progress happening elsewhere on this team, even in a match that was disappointing from an attacking standpoint, Nashville still has some leaders around MLS in attacking metrics. Let's get to our gold nuggets now and discuss that. And Tim, starting off with Dan Lovitz from the left side, he still leads the league after this match and chances created with 14 of them. Is he the most underrated player on this club? Or do you think the volume, considering he's the corner kick taker, he's taken free kicks, mm-hmm. is that distorting his perceived quality? Yeah, a big piece of it is the set piece uh, pr- production that he provides, the service that he provides. He is the primary left-footed set piece taker, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. But since I don't see that changing anytime soon, I wouldn't expect that production to drop off either in games where Nashville is going to earn a lot of corner kicks or a lot of free kicks. If they need a left-footed guy to take him, it's going to be him more often than not. I do think that if he had bucketed that open goal in the first half and, and given Nashville that boost that they probably would have needed to to go on to win two or three to nothing when they had that kind of confidence behind them, people will be feeling very differently about him than they than they are today. But he's going to continue producing, even if it's primarily because of those set-piece opportunities and, and the crosses from those overlapping runs. And I guess that takes us back to that classic style versus results debate that we had last week. You know, who cares if the production's on set pieces or from open play? He's just connected on four of 17 crosses in open play. And yet, if Nashville's going to keep earning corner kicks, and last year they led the league in set-piece goals, then part of his perceived quality is his ability to put the ball on a dime to the head of Walker Zerman, Yonder Cadiz, CJ Sapong, whoever might be in the box. So I guess it's a bit unfair for me to say that that even you know set-piece stats could distort perceived quality when that's exactly part of what Nashville wants to get out of him. Yeah, and they haven't gotten as much of it this year in terms of the final product. Among the other areas that they haven't gotten the final product, they haven't gotten a ton of set-piece goals yet this year. And if it does kind of rebound back to where it was last year in terms of the percentage of offensive production that Nashville gets from set-pieces, all of a sudden this offense might kind of get back to where it was a couple weeks ago too. Tim, is it possible that expected goals could be Nashville supporters' favorite stat and least favorite stat at the same time? It's the bittersweet feeling of, <laughs> of seeing a high number and knowing that it, again, hasn't turned into points on the table. Nashville leads the league in XG with 6.3, 10th in XG against with 2.97. But then the flip side of that is that based on XG, they should have scored two and a half more goals than they have, and that'd be third worst in the league. So discouraging, promising. What is that number ultimately? It's such a tough age old debate ever since expected goals have existed basically is 
are you what the goals say you are or are you what the expected goals say you are? The answer is obviously somewhere in between. If you want to look backwards, obviously the goals are the only thing that matters. But looking forwards, XG has traditionally been much more projectable to future performance than has the goals that you've already scored. So until it kind of turns around and, and Nashville starts converting at an expected rate, it's going to be bittersweet. But if they do, we're seeing an offense that is still very, very potent. Talking about product, Randall Leal continues to be such an incisive option for Nashville in the attack. He leads MLS in shots on target. And I think the most impressive statistic to me is that 90% of his shots have found their way on frame. And that's easily best in the league among players with five shots or more. Just to give you an idea of how good that is, nine of his 10 shots being on frame. All other players on Nashville's team combined have put just 31% of their shots on target. He's been so positive for this team. Yeah, and you wouldn't be saying that Randall Leal is taking his shots from from easy range no. to put them on target either. He's taking long shots and he's putting them exactly where he wants to. Maybe sometimes he's he's firing crosses and putting them slightly <laughs> <laughs> more dangerous positions than he wanted to, but um, he's he entered Nashville as a long shot specialist. That is what he does and we've seen that uh, that's his reputation for a reason. He's very good at it. Yeah, including against Miami in the playoffs last year at Nissan Stadium. And I don't have the stat in front of me, but I do, I do believe at least five of those efforts on target have been from outside the 18. My question then for you, uh, the first part might be kind of easy. Is he Nashville's most sellable player at this point? The, the second part, and maybe that's not an easy question. We'll, we'll give it to you in a minute here. The second part, though, is, is he still on the roster at the end of the season based on the growth that he's showing? Yeah, the first part is... is a little bit more complicated than it seems at first. Okay. People people think, okay, Hani Mukhtar, he's been in Europe and and he's now in MLS. It's over for him. Jean Dracot is he's he's been in Europe, he's in, in MLS, it's over for him. But these guys are 26 and 25 years old. Everybody on this Nashville team who's especially, you know, kind of a potential target for some of these overseas teams, even Walker Zimmerman, I believe, is still only 28. These are guys that are that are going to have opportunities if if they want them and if Nashville wants to work with them to find opportunities. So Leal is one of a, a cohort, but probably the most sellable right now of all those guys because of the form that he's in um, because he's a couple of years younger than, than a guy like Hani or Jander. So uh, yes to that part. Is he still on the roster at the end of the season? I think so. I think he has settled into middle Tennessee in a way that he's going to want to stay for a couple more years. And again, because he's so young, he can move back to Europe. A lot of people forget that since he was bought from Costa Rica, they forget he was in Belgium for a year and a half. I think he has experienced that and kind of knows what it's going to take to make it back there if he wants to. And he's willing to put in the work in MLS to, to make sure it's the right move when the time comes rather than saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. I'm having a good start to the season. Let's try and find some options. And as judicious as Mike Jacobs and this scouting staff are about signing players and maximizing value there, you know they're also going to, going to want to maximize value in the sale of a player too. I, I could certainly see them getting some outreach for some, from some smaller clubs perhaps mm -hmm. in Europe first, but, but I, I would imagine they'd want the best fit for the club's aspirations and certainly also for what Randall's going to fit. And it, I know, I know, I know it's pretty audacious of me to suggest based on a three game <laughs> sample size this year and a few strong matches at the end of last year that Randall would be 
uh, perhaps transfer material, but look how fast somebody like Daryl DK happened. You know, look how fast some of these other deals have come together. And especially when you consider the fact that he's going to have a chance to showcase his skills in international play as well for Costa mm-hmm. Rica. He should feature for the Ticos multiple times. He will have plenty of chances to draw the eye of, of scouts from across Europe. All right, so next up for Nashville SC is New England. Top of the table in the East. The Revs are tied for the most points in MLS. They're 2-0-1, and they're coming off a 2-1 home win over Atlanta United on a controversial penalty. They've yet to play a team that made the playoffs last year. It's a bit deceptive. DC's probably better this year than they were. Atlanta United certainly yeah, absolutely is better. better yeah. Yeah, Just put even, Joseph on any team, and they're, and they're better than last year. <laughs> right, absolutely. Two draws between Nashville and New England last season. Combined scoreline of 1-1. One to one. Bold predictions to come about that match. Nashville certainly in need of three points, but these might be the hardest ones to get so far this year. Yeah, anytime you, you take a New England team that was pretty good last year, but you could see areas in which they immediately get better this season. They've almost never had a healthy Gustavo Bo and Carlos Hill at the same time last year. Um, those guys are going to do some really awesome things, putting the ball in the back of the net this season. I think uh, in my preview that I probably put them number one in the East, and I, I would stand by that, obviously, seeing them tied for the most points on the table at this stage. And that gives us a chance to make sure we're plugging clubcountryusa.com. Tremendous recaps from the Miami contest and preview content to come on Nashville versus New England. And as we, we try to go as deep as we can here, but he's going to take you 10 miles deeper because he <laughs> just can do that in writing. It's harder to do that on a hopefully 45-minute podcast until we inevitably ramble. And speaking of rambling, Tim, let's embrace consensus. Let's do it. Because great minds think alike, and so do yours and mine, let's see if we agree this time on the question of how should Nashville SC supporters feel. We talked last week about the balance between excitement and results early in the season. And would you rather have a thrilling draw or a lackluster win? Well, Nashville ended up with a lackluster scoreless draw. How do we feel about getting neither? Yeah, I think the lack of a result is, is starting to get problematic to me on the basis of, of each individual game. It might not be that big of a deal, but when it happens three times in a row, it, it becomes a, a bit of a thing. I don't really have a problem with, with the lack of excitement offensively. Um, there were a few exciting moments, but of course, fans want to see the ball hit the back of the net. They don't want to see a, an exciting offensive push go for naught. So certainly there is there is the lack of, of excitement there. And of course, what matters is when you're three games into the season and you only have three points to show for it, that's, that's going to start to be a little bit of an issue. Miami clearly wasn't trying to win the game after that mm-hmm. first 15 minutes. They had a few chances and then they kind of said, man, let's just make these guys earn it against us. And, and props to them, props to new coach Phil Neville. He did the right things to make that happen for his team. It's going to be tough to score against a team that is kind of bunkering, that, a team that is playing a park the bus style against you. It causes the opponent to give up on trying. When you see the type of defense that Nashville puts on the field, the opponent's going to say, okay, let's just make sure these guys don't score back on us. That happened Sunday. We got used to seeing it last year. The trick is to fuse both aspects. You need the offensive output and you need the defensive solidity, and that's something that we'll hopefully see from Nashville going forward. But it it really is time to get results. This early in the season, I would contend that the lack of a result is is not problematic. I think if you if you drop points against New England, you drop points against, you know, Rail Salt Lake, Austin, and you're heading to Atlanta, then all of a sudden there's some big questions. But right now I think it's simply frustrating. And here's my mentality there. In the first five matches, I don't deeply care how many points a team gets. 
I certainly think they can look back if they're in ninth place and look back at these matches at the end of the season and say, wow, missed opportunity. But for me, the first five matches are about process and progress. And then after that, show me your product. Uh, Early season matches aren't going to break you. They're all about laying a foundation for who you're going to be. And to me, the only real cause for alarm or delight is when you have extreme deviation from your expectations. For instance, if you're Cincinnati and you muster zero shots on target against Orlando City, after spending $17 million on your attack, you have two goals in your first three matches, I think it's time to start getting alarmed. If you're Minnesota and you have zero points after three matches, you're getting outscored 7-1 and you were the popular pick to win the Western Conference, get alarmed. But if you're Nashville, you're unbeaten in three, but you're also winless, get impatient. Don't get alarmed. A sense of urgency, I think, is valuable, but nothing we've seen, in my opinion, for better or worse, has been a surprising revelation. The attack is more ambitious than it was, but it's still not as precise as desired. The defense showed some holes early, but it's starting to shore itself up. And now, Tim, this is where I come back to completely agreeing with you. Will the warts reveal themselves at the same time, offensively and defensively, and Nashville loses 3-0 to New England? Then it's time to get worried. If the team uses its sense of urgency to start clicking defensively, and then it can put a couple in the back of the net against a good New England team then all of a sudden I think it's time to be delighted and and to lose any sense of of alarm because all of a sudden you're unbeaten in four and you just got to win over a popular Eastern Conference title pick. So I think right now, time to be frustrated, yes. Impatient, sure. Alarmed, no. I think it comes down to man management and if the club can keep its wits about itself and and the players psychologically stay strong and together, I think they're fine right now. Uh, And that's Gary Smith's specialty. That's what he does best is that man management piece. All right, so consensus partially achieved, if not fully. And so now let's move on to the mailbag where you sent a number of questions, both leading up to the Miami match and after it as well. And so we're going to do an extended mailbag segment to try to interact with as many of you as possible because, again, we want to encourage you to reach out to us and and try to make this a back and forth rather than us talking and you guys listening. So inspired by a question from John, this one's fun to lead off with. If there were a Space Jam movie made about Major League Soccer, Tim, who would play the role of Michael Jordan? I'm going to add a little piece just for me. I think it needs to be an American player because you need to convince the the movie-going audience that they have a, a vested interest in this. The general American fan may be quite interested in, say, David Beckham, I think they'll be more interested in, in the, the American superstar. Uh, so we'll eliminate some of those guys like David Beckham, like Carlos Valderrama, Jaime Moreno, who's my favorite MLS player of all time. I have two takes. So for a, a brooding uh, film noir, a little neo-noir vibe, give me Clint Dempsey. He's the <laughs> retired guy who's dragged in for one last job, which is playing soccer against the Monstars um, to prevent the major league soccer players from being enslaved at moron mountain. Yeah. Oh, I know way more about space jam than, than any 35 year old man going deep. Yeah. Uh, For a little bit more of a lighthearted and and fun take on, on space jam as, as many takes on space jam should be, I think give me anyone from this current, really fun, really wild San Jose earthquakes team. And everybody knows I'm not going to pass on an opportunity. I'm going to pick Wando. Chris Wondolowski is a, a huge personality, obviously uh, loves to bag uh, tons of goals. So it's somebody that I think would, would really come across on the uh, silver screen there. I didn't know that Space Jam had a, had a sad ending, though. I mean, Wando helps his team get all the way to the pinnacle, and then oh, at the last no. moment he just misses a kick point blank. Oh, no. 
And by the way, I've been really hard on people who try to make that Wando's legacy. So I'm totally kidding. He absolutely has earned the right. And I'll tell you what, next generation of Space Jam, how about his teammate, Kate Cowell, 17 years old, getting things done. 17, but uh, as they have said elsewhere, he looks about 32 years old. <laughs> He's a mature player. <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'll counter you a little bit here. I'm not sure the player has to be American. I understand having a protagonist for whom Americans can root. But I think you can give me a guy with with multicultural appeal, including to Americans, because he would appeal to the EPL bros who who have watched him play for a few different teams across the pond as well. He has charisma. He has a protagonist feel about him. He has an adversity story he's overcome. And he's in a convenient location to Hollywood. I'm thinking of, any guesses? Well, you said he's going to appeal to people from multiple EPL fan bases. I don't know if he's going to appeal to people from a certain EPL <laughs> fan base. From your fan base? Represent. Yeah. Uh, would, that be, would that be Javier Chicharito Hernandez? That would be the little P himself, Chicharito. I think he would be perfect. He's got the, he's got the smile for Hollywood, right? He has the likability. He has the star power. And yeah, sorry, i probably given, given him too much credit for his time at West Ham, which was less than stellar, but I think you made up for it at Manchester United. You know, there, there's an audience of, of MLS supporters who have been into the international game maybe longer than they even have the, you know, the American mm-hmm. top tier. And I think he has that recognizability and would be um, an incredible Space Jam protagonist for the next generation. But I like where you're going. I, and Dempsey especially, I think, you know, maybe for the last just, generation. Just imagine he's, soccer he's like casting out on the end of a pier. He's got this big beard and they're like, Clint, we need you, man. I'm, I'm just formulating the entire script in my head. In my legs. My legs are shot. I can't do it. Cue the training <laughs> montage where he's got like the, the old grizzled coach. Call, oh, him, yeah. Oh, yeah. call him Schmob Snadley if you want or something that <laughs> rhymes with that. Get some because Bob Bradley would have to be the coach of that team, right? With the resurgence he's had with with LAFC, trying to prove that he can re- return to the form at the pinnacle of his national team leadership. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Let's let's give it to Bob. Let's give it to Bob. That's a whole other discussion. Great question. Let's go to Scott now. A little more serious question, but I think a really substantive one. He asks, "Was this the first truly encouraging game of the season?" So I think there are multiple ways to go on this. I like the open offense from the first two games in terms of feeling confident for the rest of the season, though. You take pieces from each of the games and hope that Nashville can synthesize it into a whole. You needed to see the defensive solidity of last year in a game at some point to know that this team still had that club in its bag. And when you augment what had been an explosive offense in the first two games with this, you get a level of encouragement. But again, what, what you need to see is, is a result. I think that that's the thing that's really going to finally make Nashville SC fans feel like, hey, we're, we're ready to do this. Not only are we playing well, but we're, we're achieving well. And that's what I think um, they're still lacking. So there, there is encouragement, but I wouldn't necessarily say that, that it was truly encouraging. I'm fine with that. I would say it was the first truly annoying game of the season. I think taking all the points you've made and agreeing that, that it is encouraging to see the defense return to form. But I think the, the big question that supporters have is not, can this defense bag clean sheets? It's, can this defense bag clean sheets while still having the attack be aggressive enough to go forward and put up a couple goals consistently? And so I think, you know, the attack-heavy matches suggested a reversal in form. Now, this one, 
I think will beg the question from some supporters of, is this the same old Nashville SC that we saw for two thirds of last season before they really started finding their attack? And, and this would have been the moment, I think, to find out and to be a bit more aggressive in the approach against a Miami team that we've talked about being less ambitious than usual with the Iguains out, with Robbie Robinson limited. So, you know, Scott, I think you can see it as an encouraging game if you if you want. I'm not going to fault you for that. I think there are good things to take from this result against a Miami team that is certainly better than the one we saw last season. This was not the, the mess of a team that was patchworked together. But I think fans who are discouraged, who are discouraged is too strong a word, but those who are annoyed by the result, I think especially in some total with the first two matches of the year, can certainly find plenty of justifiable reasons to be frustrated. Yeah, it's it's fair to feel positively and it's fair to feel negatively. And I think as with all kind of these sorts of discussions, the, the true reality lies somewhere in between. Chris Hole reaches out and asks, is the frequent attitude among NSC players that they are unhappy with their previous opportunities and came to Nashville to prove themselves more indicative of Gary Smith's preferences for gutsy hard workers or of Mike Jacobs' preference for valuing the undervalued? It's funny because Chris followed up and saying, I know you're going to say both, so don't do that. But guess <laughs> guess what, Chris? It's my podcast, buddy. <laughs> it is both, unfortunately. The reality of the situation is that Mike and Gary work together so well because they have a similar philosophy. I think when you look at how Gary feels about things, it is he wants those guys who kind of have that gutsy, hardworking edge. Mike Jacobs is out looking for guys who do feel undervalued. Those two sorts of personality traits often happen in the same guy a lot of the time. We've seen it with some of the guys that have signed. We've seen it with some of the guys that Nashville has pursued. And we've seen it with how some of these guys were signed for for less allocation money than you might expect for a Dax McCarty, for example. So I think when you look at the totality of the situation, Nashville SC has hired both of these guys because they work so well together, because they share a philosophy, because it comes together and, and the players that Mike likes, the players that Mike presents to Gary and says, is this a guy that you think could fit in your system? More often than not, the answer is almost always yes, because they kind of share a similar philosophy. Yeah, and supporters can be frustrated with a lack of goals, perhaps, or with a lack of early defense or with the occasional personnel decision or tactical move. But you should know we both stand in strong admiration of the partnership between Gary Smith and mm -hmm. Mike Jacobs and the continuity, I think, between them in coming together at the early part of USL and, and sticking together, I think, is an asset for this club. And part of it is just how they work together. Uh, and, and basically the way it works, if we were if we we're really, really doing a high-level summary of how Gary and Mike work together, Mike Jacobs and the scouting staff choose the players. But before they do that, they chat with Gary about positional profiles. You know, what does each position need to do in your system? And based on what Gary gives them, then they have the fodder to go out and make those calls. Now, are they relying entirely on Gary for that? Uh, no, probably not. And you know, Gary has some you know, significant input, though, into the, the player selection process. And, you know, as Mike Jacobs says, we're not going to bring in a player that Gary doesn't want to play. We're going to alienate the relationship. We're going to waste time and money that way. So this is not a situation where they're going out and getting somebody and giving them to Gary and he's saying, okay, who's this again? What's his name? What's he do well? Gary is is deeply involved in that scouting process and in, in the discussion. And then once they have their marching orders, this front office staff goes and they look for inefficiencies in the market. A little fun with math here if you want. So Dan Lovitz was acquired for $100,000 in general allocation money. Dave Romney for two seventy five, including incentives, which we're going to guess Still he reached steel. last year. Ridiculous steal. Ridiculous steal. Dax McCarty, 100000 So those three players combined divide their total acquisition cost by the minutes they have played for this club this year and last. 
you're at an average of $74 per minute of action. Now, certainly minutes don't completely imply productivity, mm-hmm. but basically if you're on the pitch for every every minute yeah, of the season. If you're beating somebody out to play those minutes on, on a competitive team like this, it, it is a good proxy. Right. It's not a direct tie to production, but it certainly is to respect from the coaching staff and, and quality, especially on an expansion franchise. Now, just to compare, again, that's, that's $74 per minute of action. If a player goes every minute all season at that rate, you're looking at acquiring that player for $226,000 on average, which... You know, I think an expansion club where, where the market can sometimes be be you know inflated a bit for clubs that come in with a wash of allocation money to spend, monopoly money, if you're not a, a, intimately familiar with MLS roster mechanisms, that is an absolute steal. By comparison, Darlington Nagby cost Columbus uh, around $1.25 million from Atlanta. He has cost them $847 per minute played. And you need players that are at, the, at that higher rate. Walker Zimmerman, $562 in GAM per minute played. And that's fine because he's brought commensurate value out of that. And you can have those higher value players if you also are getting three elevenths of your starting 11 for that rate of, again, 74 bucks a minute. This is not a standard that's going to become uh, probably ubiquitous in Major League Soccer, but I thought it was a fun way to look at the value that they've gotten as they've searched for inefficiencies in the market and taken advantage of those. And I want to encourage everyone, if they didn't get a chance to listen to it, go back and listen to our previous episode with Mike Jacobs. He talks a little bit about how he and Gary work together in, in making sure they sign the players that he likes. He talks a little bit, uh, quite a bit about kind of finding the value in terms of how he wants to acquire these guys and how it fits into the bigger picture. It's not just about we spent this, you know, six hundred fifty thousand dollars in gam on Andy Balgadoy. It's part of a bigger picture, and it's something that was really cool to hear him talk about in, in pretty good depth with us. I think we've plugged that conversation in every subsequent podcast episode since, and I don't, I, I don't see I, that streak ending anytime soon. I ain't soon. stopping. No, it was a fantastic conversation, and I'll tell you what, especially if you like sports but you're a bit new to soccer, it is a great episode. 20 minutes can familiarize you as deeply as anything out there, at least in, in verbal form. Go to Tim's website for more. <laughs> but but the, uh, the quickest 20 minutes to understanding Nashville's personnel approach. But Travis asks, do you think there's a new midfielder coming in the summer to back up Dax or be the future replacement? And that is a question that's on the front of Nashville SC supporters' minds. As Dax McCarty and Anabal Godoy, extremely productive, respected, but they're getting on in years. And I think part of the, the trajectory of this club, it, it really does depend on finding eventual replacements for them. Do you think that guy's coming in this summer? Yeah, I don't necessarily think that, but we, we just talked about, you know, Nashville's going to be able to take advantage of situations where they can use their money wisely. If one of those falls into their lap, they'll absolutely grab a midfielder like that. But we don't know where guys like Luke Hawkinson or even Cozy Denaciano are going to fit positionally into the long-term plans. Maybe one of those replacements already is on the roster. When you look at the end of the 2021 season, hopefully Todd Ryan and Nunga's injury is a very short-term deal. He's the top backup for both Godoy and McCarty. When you look at Matt LaGrasa, who got plenty of playing time when either of those guys or both of them on a couple of occasions were out, he performed very well at this level. We'll, we'll see where the rest of the depth comes from. I don't think it's necessary to, to fill that need for this season. If Nashville wants to fill it for subsequent seasons to have a guy that they can kind of prepare and groom within their system, that makes a little bit more sense. But Dax does seem like he's got a couple more years in him. And he is eventually going to need a replacement. I don't think Dax is going to be playing until he's 40. But there's a little bit more runway when you have a guy who is the, the type of player that Dax is, where he can play uh, as much as, uh, as his legs will let him, he's going to play. And that's something 
that you really value again we keep talking coming bringing it back to value we've been indoctrinated by mike jacobs yep i think that that makes is part of what makes dax a perfect fit for not just this team because he fits perfectly into gary smith's scheme as well but for this franchise yeah i don't think that guy's coming in this summer either i think the the youth that you mentioned in the system they they want to give those guys the first chance to succeed because of the value that that would bring but the caveat is the club will always listen. You know, Walker Zimmerman wasn't really necessarily a, a long-term must for this club, although he was always kind of in the back of Mike Jacobs' mind. And when the price was right, he jumped, and Nashville SC supporters are glad that he did. My choice, my Walker Zimmerman of 2021, was Frankie Amaya. I wanted right. to see Nashville go after since he's number, number eight. I think he would have been a good fit in this system. But it was unlikely the club would overpay for him at the rate that New York Red Bulls eventually did for their trade, reported at $950,000 of GAM plus conditional money. So at a, at a dollars per minute clip, you're looking at like a Walker Zimmerman level of investment in GAM that New York Red Bulls made. That's MLS best 11 money. And Amaya isn't that. He could be, uh, but he's he's not yet at least. I think they feel much better about the quality shown by Anunga and LaGrasa to hold down the fort. I don't know that Brian Anungo or Matt Lagrassa, either one of them, are necessarily the, the club's future at the position, but they're good enough to to hold on and maintain for now. Dylan Nealis could come up and fill in if necessary, although that's not the preferred position for him. And then, yeah, I think it's all about Kose uh, and Hawkinson and seeing how those young players develop. And I think there's there's sincere and deep optimism around what both of those guys can offer in the long term. Yeah, and again, when you have the guys like Dax and Anibal who are going to play as many minutes as are available to them, you have a little bit more flexibility to kind of figure out what you already have on the roster before being so worried about finding the next guy. I have one more question that, that just came to us, and I want to pose it to you and put you on the spot here. Finn, a new fan of the podcast who uh, has really enjoyed his exposure to Nashville SE this season, says, as an MLS newcomer, if you could make some quick comparisons, what MLS teams would you compare to EPL teams, and where would Nashville SC fall in that? Oh, man, it's it's a very perfect comparison for me because I think they're a lot like West Ham, honestly. Oh, no. Uh, they kind of have a, 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 not a history because Nashville is such a new franchise, but a, a reputation as being a team that is going to defend and then whatever offense is created is going to be because of the brilliance of a few individuals. So I think that, that when you look at that comparison, you know, Mikhail Antonio for West Ham, whether it's Hani Mukhtar or Randall Leal for Nashville SC, those guys bear the brunt of the creative work. And I think, you know, that's, that's the biggest one that I think jumps out to me. And yes, of course, it is my personal experiences that are kind of coloring that idea. But I think that it's a pretty solid comparison. I know that, that Finn in particular is a Liverpool supporter. If you're relating Liverpool to a team in Major League Soccer, Seattle Sounders, because they always are um, Liverpool and Sounders share that they are always going to be almost a version of, of what I just said about Nashville SC, but but ramped up to another level. They're going to have a higher caliber um, you know, designated player for MLS, but obviously Liverpool is just is, is just going to have guys. There are there are no designated players in the Premier League, believe it or not. But um, you know, Nashville doesn't have a role. Rui Diaz. I'm not going to sit here and claim that they do. But um, Brian Schmetzer always has his team well organized. He's kind of a little bit more of a tactician than he gets credit for. A, a, a really cool, easygoing guy is going to remind a lot of people of Jurgen Klopp. And when they do have that that top end talent, as we've seen with Liverpool over the past few years, although less so this year, they're going to be an awesome team. That's a really good answer. We try to come as prepared as possible for the show, but that was completely you on sprung, the spot. You sprung it, it on brilliant. me, and, and for the listeners who know, I am not I am not Mister EPL. That's for sure. But I, I know 
more than enough to get by with the average fan and hopefully that was a good enough one to get by on this podcast i think that was pretty dang good i'll give you two more that that work for me i think new york red bulls are tottenham they've always been around they've always been pretty good but they've actually never won anything yeah so there's a reason there's a reason you hear spursy and there's a reason you hear that so metro going dating back to the metro <laughs> stars days of, of new york red bulls and there's a reason that both of those phrases mean the same thing yes they do and then as an arsenal supporter i would relate arsenal to the chicago fire once great now under investing expectations still high the the market in which they reside you would expect them to be elite and yet they just can never find a way to do it and part of it is because they leak goals late in matches and torment their supporters this is starting to get personal for me because i feel like i'm <laughs> yeah, going deep in my the, arsenal angst the, the bile in your voice coming up so yes chicago fire fans if any are listening to this nashville sc podcast we feel you arsenal fans stay away from the chicago fire if, if you want to be a, a mentally healthy human being uh, away be a from more well-rounded uh, fandom sort of guy yes absolutely i think lafc would love to be the man city of mls here soon a lot of investment asking people where in the world do these guys come from although of course man city's been around a long time they've not been elite uh for very long maybe chelsea's a good a better comparison there actually i don't know yeah. you can go either one weirdly i think chelsea is a, is a good fit for nycfc which is part of the same ownership group as man city but yeah. they, they kind of have that that new money let's let's just go get the job done whereas lafc has that exciting brand and um you know the the tactical wizard that bob bradley has become in in recent years in comparison to pep guardiola who's the tactical wizard probably globally nowadays so it's a i think those two two sets of, of teams are, are weirdly better fits than than the ones that it might seem like is a more natural one it's a really good conversation. It was a great question, uh, Finn. Thank you for reaching out. And, and just a, a shout out to him and to others who are maybe a little bit new to Nashville SC. We want this podcast to be meaty and satisfying enough for people who want to go deep, but also accessible enough for people who are just getting into this thing. So questions like that are great. And, and thanks for the opportunity to take a look at the league. And let's continue with that theme now and go outside in. Well, we know that whether or not U.S. Open Cup happens this year, it won't happen for Nashville SC. As the tournament was indefinitely delayed, but the at least initial criterion was to be in the top eight of U.S.-based MLS teams after those first three matches. Nashville's 21st on three points and a surprising team with a perfect record. I think before the season, nobody would have expected Real Salt Lake to be leading the league on points per game after the first two contests that they've played. It does make it a little easier that they have only played two because there's an odd number of teams in Major League Soccer that'll level off pretty quickly for everybody as teams get through that bye week. But um, Real Salt Lake, a natural opponent coming pretty quickly too. RSL first on points per game, fifth overall on the table. New England is second, Austin sixth. And those are Nashville's next three opponents. Only one team without points yet. Surprisingly, Minnesota, and they've really struggled. As we mentioned earlier on the show, they've been outscored 7-1 to one so far this year. They were many people's picks to win the West this year. Yeah, I think when you look at what they accomplished last year, a lot of it was, was kind of the reverse of what we're seeing with Nashville SC so far this year, is, is overachieving the the play-to-play output that you that it seems like you probably deserve. They outperformed their expected goals pretty frequently. They were one of the luckier teams in the league, and Falling this far, I don't think anybody expected, but maybe a slight step back and, and a little bit of bad luck so far this year, and, and you have what you see from Minnesota so far. Meanwhile, defending MLS Cup champion Columbus, the only team in the league that is scoreless, and they're also unscored upon. Two scoreless draws through two matches. Not much to take from that, I guess, so far. If you're a Nashville SC fan who's upset about two scoreless draws, or about three straight draws, I should say, 
look at Columbus. They won the cup last year and, and they're kind of seeing similar struggles. Will they snap out of it? Will Nashville snap out of it? Those draws against Philadelphia and a team Nashville also drew with Montreal. Let's take it on to CONCACAF Champions League. Speaking of Columbus, they're one of five MLS teams in the quarterfinals of CCL. The first time that's ever happened in the modern incarnation of the tournament. TFC trails Cruz Azul 3-1 going to Mexico City. So it's been fun. TFC, sorry. Philadelphia leads Atlanta 3-0. So obviously an MLS team guaranteed to go to the semifinal uh, there, and that Chester leg takes place. If you're listening on Tuesday when this comes out, it's taking place tonight. Columbus and Portland both level with Monterey and America and going down to Mexico. So an uphill battle for all those teams playing Liga MX squads. What's a good result for MLS? Is it it one team joining Philly in in the next round? Or, I mean, do you think that's possible? It's going to be tough. I think that will be disappointing if that's what happens, or if it doesn't happen, I should say. If If it's going to end up just being Philly, um, or maybe a big comeback from Atlanta. But if it ends up being just Philly, uh, that would be a disappointment because, as you mentioned, five teams through um, to this round for the first time ever. You don't want to see that come to fruition and then just kind of fizzle out. You want to see MLS continue to make strides. And it has looked like MLS is doing that. And to see it kind of stop the second a lot of teams see a Mexican side who traditionally dominate this competition would be pretty disappointing. Yeah, if you're relatively new to CCL, no MLS team has ever won it since its modern version. MLS having two semifinalists alive has only happened three times in that 12-year history of the tournament. But hey, it's also the first time MLS had those five quarterfinalists. So anything less than that to me would be a disappointment. When you put five in the final late, you need to have at least half of the semis. And if they do, I mean, all bets are off. If you get a Columbus team coming off a a success against Monterey, who's one of the most informed teams in Liga MX, then, you know, who can't they beat? I think we'll believe a a CCL title when we see it, but you get two out of four there and well, you never know. Gosh, we're all just crossing our fingers and holding our breath, waiting for it to happen. As of last Tuesday morning, it it looked like this might be the year. Things got a little bit more grim with the Cruz Azul 3-1 lead over Toronto FC, but Hey, even two home draws for MLS teams last week. We'll see if they can kind of turn those tides when they go down to Mexico tomorrow night. They're not grim for me right now in MLS Fantasy. Let's head to our final whistle. The club and country MLS Fantasy League has a new leader, and it's yours truly. I'm on top of the table after a 110-point performance. That's what happens when you play Carlos Heel. Three players with clean sheets defensively. Nani, by the way, the captain against FC Cincinnati, worked out pretty well. You're biding your time in 13th, but you're ready to make a West Ham-style run into the Champions League places. It's early in the season. Yeah, I felt pretty good going into the evening game Sunday. I was like, yeah, man, this I have like you know 60-something points. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Looked up at the standings and saw where you, where you were, and that was pretty... Uh, it was a real come-back-down-to-earth moment for me. Let me tell you, I was on a weekend golf trip and my skills were getting looked down on all weekend. So it felt nice to be looked up on it. It's something. (laughs) And I want to give a shout out because he because he complained to me that we didn't say anything last week. Brian, who forgot to set his lineup for the first week, had a great second week. I think he probably had an okay third week. He's he's sitting sitting up there in mid table, kind of not so far from me. So shout out to you, Brian. Points are cumulative over the course of the season, but it's a it's a long season. So hop on in, join now and you can still catch up. Uh, just ask Braden Gall, who was last place among people who actually set their lineups and has now jumped up to, he's like 14th. He's doing okay right now. It's a long year. So let's get hashtag everyone in. 
the league and uh, have some fun this year. Interact with us that way too. Content recommendations. What's good out there that that you've been reading? Yeah, I've been reading a lot of of the Backpass, which is the newsletter version of Holding the High Line, a, a podcast covering the Colorado Rapids. I think fans by now know that I like to read across the league, figure out what's going on, but also see how people are talking about the game. Um, my friend Mark Goodman, who's also known as the Rapids Rabbi, or if you go back to the USL days. He lives in Pittsburgh now. And so he's the river hounds rabbi as well. Um, does great work over there. So uh, everybody check that out for sure. I've read Mark's work. It's really good. I'm gonna recommend the book 31 nil, which is not the account of when FC Cincinnati plays LAFC is at it? some point. <laughs> it might also be that. And then they might have a trademark or copyright issue on their hands because it is a book by James Montague. He's an author I've recommended in this space before for his book about global supporters clubs. This one's about nations around the globe dreaming of World Cup qualification. And the namesake of the book is an actual score of an actual match in World Cup qualifying between Australia and American Samoa. And, you know, we all know what the U.S. is up against in CONCACAF. What about Palestine? What about Eritrea? What about Haiti? What about some of these countries that have little to absolutely zero hope of qualifying for a World Cup? They're still involved in the tournament and still get to play the matches. And James travels around the world to every soccer-playing continent and visits with those players. It's fascinating to hear his accounts because, again, it's not really about the soccer. These guys know they're not going to qualify, but it's about that little shred of hope. It's the 16 versus one in the NCAA tournament, but pretend the 16 is actually the, you know, the bottom seed in one of those tiny little conference tournaments and still gets to play against the, the Dukes of the world. It really is compelling, and um, it, it, it gets you in touch with the beauty of the game. Spoiler alert, I don't believe a single team featured in the book actually qualifies for the World Cup. And that spoiler is not going to ruin your enjoyment of the book because it is it is rich in in stories and humanity and where it might be light and in goals scored, at least by the pro- protagonists in the book. Check it out. All right, finally, bold predictions for Nashville and New England. These two teams have drawn both times they've faced each other in their history. Tim, what's going to happen this time around? I think there is going to be, drumroll please, another draw between Nashville and New England and another draw for the boys in gold this year. But it's going to be it's going to feel different when you hold New England to a scoreless draw than it is when Miami holds you to a scoreless draw. Mm-hmm. Like I said previously, this is a outstanding New England team and I don't want to think that Nashville is going to come out hoping to just get a point. I think they're going to try and score and win the game. But if you end this game and and you have a single point, it's going to feel a heck of a lot better than a single point against Cincinnati or a, a, even against Miami or Montreal. Nashville fans are going to get to watch, if not enjoy, one of the most effective playmakers and creators in the game in in Major League Soccer, and that's Carlos Heel. Absolutely deadly in central attacking midfield. A lot of fun to watch if he's not up against you. Uh, I think this match will be decided on a set piece. That's my that's my prediction. I think it's uh, I'm not going to make an actual score pick because I'm on the broadcast, but I think it's a low scoring match. Maybe a one goal differential either way. These are two of the top four teams in the league when it comes to aerial duels. They have large presences inside the box on corner kicks and free kicks. Don't forget Walker Zimmerman scored a goal against New England off a corner kick last season. New England has two set piece goals this year of the five they've scored. This will be one of those matches where you could say, all right, might be cagey, might be low scoring. But in those matches, the beauty of that is that every kick matters and set pieces could be really significant in this contest. 
Yeah, you're you're living and dying each time you see that ball go into the air. The hand the hands go down and then the ball goes in the air and it, it you're holding your breath. And with Lovitz and Leal's delivery with guys like Walker, Cadiz, and Romney in the box, I think Nashville can feel pretty good about a match coming down to a set piece, if indeed it does. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Thanks, as always, for your mailbag questions. We could not do an extended mailbag edition without your involvement. And you keep peppering us with questions. Keep it up. Also, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for the highlight at the beginning of the show. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music you're hearing now. And thanks, as always, for the fools at the 440 Sports Network for letting us on the air. Until next time, I'm Wes with Tim. Tim. So long.